0: So also in the general statements of of the guidelines and the cardiac societies, we distinguish coronary spasm from impaired um, vasodilatation and we can test both of these um, during our um, catheter sessions. And maybe you can tell us a little bit, you have more experience with the invasive testing. How would you test um, these functional disorders in the catheter?
1: Yeah, thank you for this question. I think it's very important, especially for interventional cardiologists to understand that these additional assessments can be done in the cath lab with no additional costs and with only less, uh, very little uh, additional time. Hello everyone. Thank you very much for joining us for this ECR podcast today. My name is Peter Ong. I'm a cardiologist from Stuttgart in Germany, and I'm joined here by Andrea Seitz, my co-host today, who is working at the same institution. The topic today is invasive diagnosis of coronary functional disorders causing angina pectoris. And we are very happy to have you here today to discuss this interesting topic. So Andres, my first question would be um, just the clinical scenario. You have a patient with chest pain and uh, the patient is sent to you for diagnostic coronary angiography um, and, and then it turns out that the patient has no epicardial stenosis. So what do you do and how do you handle these patients usually?
0: Yeah, that's a very important question, um, because that's a clinical situation or a constellation that we see pretty often in daily clinical practice. And I guess that uh, most cardiologists uh, who listen to that podcast also see this in daily clinical practice. Uh, And actually, we know from large studies um, from the last couple of years that almost or about 50 percent of patients undergoing invasive coronary angiography for suspected obstructive disease Um, turn out to have non-obstructive coronary arteries. uh, And so we don't really have an explanation for their symptoms at this point. Um, And we also get more data and, and information about coronary functional disorders, which are disorders that cause angina in the absence of coronary artery disease. And in such patients that we see in the cath lab, it's important to also look beyond stenosis and to look um, also for coronary functional disorders, which we can easily assess during coronary angiography.
1: Yeah, thank you for this um, explanation. What is actually coronary functional disorder? Um, One problem that I have is that um, there are lots of different terms used um, for this kind of uh, coronary disease. Um, So what can you tell us about the terminology and also about the different types of functional disorders that are most relevant in patients with angina and unobstructed coronary arteries?
0: Yeah, that's true. There's some inconsistency regarding terminology for these diseases. Some call it coronary functional disorders or vasomotor disorders. Those are the two major terms that are used to describe them. And Coronary functional disorders in itself is an umbrella term for a whole group of functional disorders, of um, disorders of vasomotor function, of vasodilatation or um, vasoconstriction, uh, let's say, of the autoregulation of coronary uh, vasomotor. Um, and what we ha- have on the one side is we have impaired vasodilatation. Vasodilatation, especially of the coronary microvessels, is extremely important um, to adjust coronary flow and oxygen supply to oxygen demand, depending on the situation and uh, physical activity of the patient. So it's important that coronary um, vessels are able to dilate and increase coronary flow. On the other hand, we have situations where we don't need so much Um, coronary flow so much oxygen and then uh, coronary vessels can constrict and so we have two main mechanisms the one is vasodilatation the other is vasoconstriction and in the healthy heart we have a good balance of both uh, mechanisms. Um, but there are some disease states where we have imbalance and we have increased vasoconstriction especially or impaired vasodilatation. And those are the two main disorders that we can have. We can have patients um, who tend to have increased vasoconstrictive tendency and uh, which leads to coronary spasm. And we have patients who cannot dilate their coronary microvessels adequately, and they may have issues adjusting their coronary flow to the oxygen demand during physical activity. Um, so also in the general statements of, um, of the guidelines and the cardiac societies, we distinguish coronary spasm from impaired um, vasodilatation, and we can test both of these um, during our Um, catheter sessions and maybe you can tell us a little bit you have more experience with the invasive testing yeah how would you test um, these functional disorders in the cath lab
1: yeah thank you for this question i think it's very important especially for interventional cardiologists to understand that these additional assessments can be done in the cath lab with no additional costs and with only less Uh, very little uh, additional time. So the diagnostic benefit that you get from performing these additional assessments is very high. Um, It has several advantages uh, when doing these invasive um, tests because uh, once you find the diagnosis um, and the explanation for the patient's symptoms, you can not only give the patient the right treatment but you can also reassure the patient that the cause for the symptoms has been found and that um, this can now be adequately treated. Um, Another important aspect is that you can also estimate the prognosis of the patient from the results of the additional assessments. um, And and in some of these patients, a more close uh, follow-up is necessary. Um, what is also important is that um, these additional invasive assessments can be uh, done um, immediately after diagnostic coronary angiography. Um, you can prepare the additional assessments upfront if you have a high suspicion that the patient has no epicardial stenosis. And it is also important um, to acknowledge that Acetylcholine and adenosine are the two provocative substances that should be used uh, when performing these assessments. And there's, of course, a large variety of how uh, to perform these assessments. But the main thing is that acetylcholine is used for assessment of coronary spasm and adenosine is used for the assessment of microvascular vasodilatation and um, I think that, that's, that's important to know that these two substances are used and, and the rest is then discussed in more detail a bit later.
0: Okay, great. So what would you do in clinical practice if you imagine you have a patient on the cath lab, you just did your diagnostic angiography which didn't show any obstructive disease Um, How would you start? Would you start with the adenosine provocation or the acetylcholine? What's your standard?
1: Yeah, thanks for the question. I think it's very important that um, we talk about two different scenarios. One scenario could be that the patient has some form of epicardial disease and you would perhaps like to know what is the measurement of a pressure wire, um, just to exclude a hemodynamically relevant stenosis. So in these instances, I would always prefer to to perform the adenosine test first because it not only gives you the information about uh, the relevance of the epicardial plaque, but also additional information about the function of the microcirculation. So the uh, systems that are available at the moment um, can not only tell us um, what's the FFR, but also tell us what is the coronary flow reserve and the microvascular resistance. And then just uh, if the patient has no relevant epicardial disease, then these measurements uh, can be done and they are indicative of um, microvascular uh, function. And afterwards, acetylcholine uh, testing can be performed to inform us about the the, uh, coronary spasm tendency. Um, In patients where there is absolutely no epicardial disease and you would not start with the pressure wire um, because of epicardial plaque, um, I would always go for acetylcholine first because studies have shown that the um, frequency of abnormal acetylcholine tests um, in these patients is very high. Um, So I would not need to place a wire. It's... um, it's done in a very short amount of time and the diagnostic um, information is very high. So that would be then my my favorite. And only if acetylcholine testing shows no uh, coronary spasm or if I want to have the, the full picture of information, then I would go for adenosine testing with the wire in the artery after acetylcholine. And, um, of course, um, it's also important to think about the the prevalence and the frequency of these uh, disorders, um, as I just said, because it may also trigger the sequence of testing. Uh, Andreas, can you tell us a bit about how uh, the frequency among these different so-called endotypes is distributed? So, So how many patients have coronary spasm if they are, Um, examined by this complete protocol and how many patients have impaired vasodilatation and what is the frequency of
0: the mixed results that you can also have? Yeah, that's a very good question. And um, during the last couple of years, we've uh, we've been getting a lot of information and scientific data on these prevalences um, of the different endotypes that we were just talking about. Um, because a couple of years ago in the last decades there were several groups in the research area in this field um, which rather focused on one of the two mechanisms and uh, some groups rather focused on um, coronary spasm um, and not impaired vasodilatation and others did the way around um, and so it, it was always kind of a um, missing the whole picture um, because comprehensive testing which did include both mechanisms um, has not been done in, in, in a lot of patients until a couple of years ago and uh, now there's increasing evidence from studies where both mechanisms were tested in the same uh, session in the same patients and we now learn that coronary spasm is uh, by far the more prevalent disease in patients with angina and non-obstructed coronary artery disease. Um, There's Mm -hmm. some data from the Netherlands um, and also from Japan that show that about 80, 90% of patients with ANOCA or ENOCA um, have coronary spasm, either of the coronary microvasculature or epicardial coronary arteries. And some of them may also have impaired vasodilatation of um, the coronary microvessels in response to adenosine. Um, but this is rather the, the smaller number of patients. Um, and then there are only a very few patients who only have impaired vasodilatation without enhanced vasoconstriction without coronary spasm during provocative testing. And this is what you just said, um, that you go for acetylcholine first um, whenever possible or whenever reasonable, because we know that there's such a high prevalence of um, coronary spasm in these patients, um, so that it's the most easy and fastest way to get to the diagnosis. Yeah, and we also need to consider that there are still some some challenges with endotypes um, because we all know that the coronary flow reserve, which you were just talking about, um, is the index of hyperemic coronary flow and resting coronary flow. And um, we know that this index is highly dependent on resting coronary flow, of course. And we don't really know which impact resting coronary flow has. And so during the last couple of years, the microvascular resistance measurements, which is HMR for hyperemic microvascular resistance, or IMR for, uh, for index of microvascular resistance, has, have been gaining more and more attention because in these measurements, um, they don't depend on resting coronary flow. And so they're considered to be uh, more specific for have hyperemic basal vasod- dilatation. Can you tell us a little bit about
1: the differences between uh, these two ways of measuring microvascular resistance? Because um, it's, it's probably important to talk about um, the two different ways of, of measuring it um, and uh, also about the two different systems because um, the, the results are perhaps not
0: 100% comparable. Yeah, that's correct. So we have two main differences or one main difference in in measuring those indices of microvascular resistance. The, four, the first HMR is measured by Doppler technique. So we have a um, core intracoronary um, guide wire equipped with a um, Doppler sensor on the tip and additional pressure sensor. And we directly measure coronary flow velocity in the coronary artery. And using the coronary flow velocity and um, the coronary intracoronary pressure, we can metha- measure the resistance. The other technique is an indirect measurement using thermodilution technique, and uh, in this case, we have thermodilution guide wire with a uh, thermistor, and we inject um, room temperature saline, and then we measure the transit time the saline Mm -hmm. needs to get to the tip of the wire, um, and then we can calculate coronary flow Velocity from uh, from the transit time. So this is rather an, an indirect measurement of coronary flow. Um, and again, we we measure distal coronary pressure as well, and then we can calculate the uh, index of microvascular resistance. And um, there are several groups, and I'm using the one or the other technique. Um, and both techniques have their advantages and disadvantages. And we also have information or first data that not. In all patients, both measurements agree. So there's um, a tendency to, to a higher um, CFR values um, with um, the thermal dilution technique, for example. And we still don't really know what is the optimal cutoff value for which technique. Do we need to make a difference? Uh, current guidelines. Do not, do not address this uh, difference in techniques yet, um, but there's uh, more data to come, and uh, we'll, see, we'll soon know if we need to make a difference and maybe which technique is uh, more precise or more reproducible. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is about the endotypes and the measurements, but um, maybe an important question, which we, we all, I guess, uh, who are active in this field often hear is, uh, what's the consequence? Why why would you do such measurements and, and complex calculations? Um, what's the consequence for the clinical treatment? Is there a consequence?
1: Yeah, I think that's very important to talk about it. Um, I often get this question from my patients and they're asking me, do I really need to undergo the complete invasive assessment? And And then I tell these patients, look, you can also go for a trial of treatment. You can just try a certain drug that perhaps relieves coronary spasm or improves microvascular function. And if it helps in alleviating the symptoms, then one can make a decision just to continue with these uh, drugs and uh, not go for uh, a sophisticated analysis with invasive measurements. Uh, But in patients where uh, this trial of treatment is not working, and also in patients who suffer from refractory symptoms over a longer period of time, there it is very important to determine the underlying pathophysiology to to go for um, these invasive functional assessments um, because the underlying mechanism um, may be um, indicative for the correct treatment. Um, We know that the Cormica study from 2019 has um, shown that the diagnostic approach with this invasive diagnostic procedure where acetylcholine and adenosine testing is performed and then a treatment is initiated based on the results of these two investigations, um, that this approach leads to an improved quality of life um, after six months and after 12 months so, um, of course, one can argue that there is no difference in hard endpoints, um, but from my perspective, it's already very important that we um, have an approach that can lead to improved quality of life, because that is all often also uh, impacting on the workforce of the patients and also on other important factors during daily life. So. The question is, what is then the appropriate treatment for the respective endotype? And of course, a lot of colleagues know that calcium channel blockers and short-acting nitrates are the mainstay of treatment in patients with coronary spasm. Um, But there is also a proportion of patients where this, let's say, first-line treatment is not working, and then perhaps you need to to go to um, a different calcium channel blocker or sometimes it's also advisable to compare um, the effectiveness of different, um, um, different calcium channel blockers and perhaps to combine two different calcium channel blockers to have s- synergistic effects um, on the vasomotion of the respective patient. So, and one can go there into uh, quite many details um, if patients um, do not respond to the treatment, and many, many colleagues would go very high with the dose of the calcium channel blocker, especially for diltiazem, for example. Um, and, and also the treatment of um, the other endotypes um, is not 100% clear. Um, of course, it would make sense to, uh, to treat the risk factors. And um, if you have a patient with diabetes where the microcirculation is um, already impaired, then it would make sense to, to give um, drugs that in, improve the microcirculation. Um, but another important concept is also to, um, to administer beta blockers so that a heart rate is going down and myocardial perfusion in diastole is, is then uh, improved. Um, and this can often lead to an improvement of symptoms. And um, of course, we know that um, the core micro study was just the start of prospective studies in a randomized fashion. So um, uh, other studies are on the way, and they will, in the future, inform us about um, the effectiveness of of different approaches. For example, the examine CAD study will compare um, bisoprolol with deltisim and placebo in a randomized fashion. Um, in patients with angina and unobstructed arteries um, who underwent um, the aforementioned um, approach with acetylcholine 2 choline and adenosine. And we will get a lot of information from this trial regarding the effectiveness of certain drugs in certain endotypes. And the same holds true for the Ilias-Anoka study uh, from the Netherlands uh, with a similar approach like the Cormaca trial, Um, but in this study, the Doppler technique will be used for the invasive measurements of coronary flow reserve and microvascular resistance. So I think it's an an important field of invasive cardiology, and I also hope that we uh, can encourage interventional cardiologists to, to add these assessments to their portfolio. Um, uh, Andreas, uh, w- what is your opinion on the um, on the time frame that you need for the um, additional assessments? Um, what what would you tell somebody who is uh, concerned about uh, the time that you invest uh, for these patients in the cath lab? Um, what's your opinion?
0: Um, so we calculate about thirty to forty minutes um, per Um, angio and um, reactivity testing, you probably need about um, 15 to 20 minutes for the spasm provocation testing and about um, 10 minutes for assessment of the microvascular vasodilatation. Um, And then you should be done within about half an hour, um, which is not much time considering um, that other interventions will take a couple of hours of time or just routine IFR, FFR measurements um, also take a couple um, of minutes. And so um, we just heard about the, the clinical consequences and the, the prevalences of these diseases. And I think it's, it's, it's worth investing these minutes and uh, 20, 30 minutes um, to make the diagnosis and to, um, to treat the patient in the, the right fashion.
1: Yeah, I think it's also important that a lot of these patients come back as a so-called frequent flyer, right? Um, They are then perhaps discharged because there is no epicardial stenosis and then they are sent home um, and uh, after a while they come back with um, unstable symptoms. So again, they undergo invasive angiography and and again, there is no epicardial stenosis. So um, these patients may also benefit um, from from future presentations where um, perhaps no additional invasive diagnostics are performed because um, it is already known that there is a functional disorder as the cause for the patient's symptoms.
0: Mm-hmm. Maybe, um, maybe one last question for you. But um, do the guidelines say to the testing? Is that something that is recommended or is it something just for special centers?
1: Yeah, that, that's a good question. I mean, we are working in Germany, so um, the European Society of Cardiology guidelines, they Um, are important for us. And um, the the last guideline on the management of the chronic coronary syndrome um, clearly stated um, that these assessments are recommended. Um, It is important to look at two different patient cohorts. Um, The first cohort are patients where coronary spasm is suspected, um, especially in patients with resting angina. And um, in these patients, it is recommended to perform coronary spasm testing using, for example, choline with the class 2A recommendation. Um, and then there's the cohort of patients in whom microvascular dysfunction is suspected, and, and this cohort of patients has also a class 2A recommendation um, when looking at the invasive assessments for coronary flow reserve and for microvascular resistance. So in combination, in daily practice, it's hard to differentiate between these two cohorts. A lot of patients with exertional um, shortness of breath, they also have resting angina. So then the question is, what is, the, uh, what is your suspicion uh, in these two mentioned categories? Um, and that is why um, I would say we have a class two recommendation for both acetylcholine colon and the adenosine testing. And that's why we should... Um, we, we should go for it um, uh, in everyday practice. Um, we hope that the future studies currently uh, enrolling patients will um, contribute to a change in the guideline recommendation in the near future. Um, we hope that um, we will become an upgrade from class 2A to class 1 because of the outcome data that are currently Uh, being enrolled Um, but that is of course um, not sure but it would be a a great step forward for these patients because then uh, a class one recommendation would come um, more into the minds of of the general cardiologist and also of of a broader community uh, performing invasive angiography Uh, and this would surely help um, the large number of patients who today go undiagnosed um, and untreated.
0: Great. Well, then, I think we covered most important topics. There's still a long way to go to introduce this to daily clinical practice in all centers, or in many centers. And uh, we will continue working on gathering the data, and uh, we're excited looking at the studies that are currently performed. And um, thank yeah, you. Yeah, per- perhaps one
1: last uh, comment. Um, if. Uh, some of the audience would like to uh, perform these kind of tests in in their own center we're always willing to support you we're always willing to share our protocols and um, our experience so uh, please do not hesitate to contact us if you uh, would like to start with these uh, tests in, in your center and um, finally i would like to uh, thank you for listening to this ecr podcast uh, thank you andreas for um, for sharing um, your thoughts with us and thank you very much for uh, participating um, we would hope that you continue listening to the ECR podcast um, in the next um, issues to come and uh, thanks very much and uh, have a good day, bye bye, thank you Bye bye